The HIPAA security rule was written almost two decades ago and enacted in 2003, before the advent of technologies including the Internet of Things and medical robotics. So, with so many healthcare sector organizations focused on HIPAA compliance as the cornerstone of their security and privacy programs, where are the gaps when it comes to the Internet of Things, robotics, and other emerging technologies used for patient care? I'm Marianne Kolbesek McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with Privacy and Security Attorney Stephen Wu of the law firm Silicon Valley Law Group in San Jose, California. Stephen, who is author of the recently released book A Guide to HIPAA Security and the Law, Second Edition, will discuss some of the privacy and security challenges related to emerging technologies in healthcare. So, Stephen, for starters, congratulations on your new book. What are the most significant changes in the healthcare privacy and security scene since the first edition of the book in 2007, and since the HIPAA security rule was enacted in 2003? We've seen a number of technologies now that we would consider mainstream, like cloud computing and like mobile device computing. That came after the HIPAA security rule and the HIPAA privacy rule came out. So dealing with those new technologies is one of the chief challenges that compliance officers and attorneys face when counseling healthcare clients. So Stephen, as I said earlier, since the HIPAA rules first came out about 20 years ago, we've seen many advancements in technologies, especially in recent years, including. IoT and medical robotics. In light of these advancements, what sorts of gaps do you see when it comes to what HIPAA requires and the security controls that are actually needed to safeguard protected health information related to these new technologies? Well, I think it's good to step back and talk a little bit about the history of the HIPAA security rule, which came out in 2003, 13 years ago, and where we were back then and where we're heading. The dominant computing paradigm back in 2003 was people using desktop computers and laptop computers, and they were using Windows XP. At that time, we had cell phones in common usage, but not universal usage. But we hardly even had cameras on cell phones. We had iPods, but we didn't have iPhones. People were starting to use Salesforce.com, which entered the market in January of 1999. We had Amazon Web Services beginning in 2002, so cloud computing was just in its infancy, and that's when the HIPAA security rule came out. I think it's also good to see what came after the HIPAA security rule came out in 2003. MySpace came out in 2004, so the beginning of social networking. Facebook came out in 2004. YouTube in 2005. Twitter in 2006, the iPhone in 2007, Dropbox, and thinking about cloud storage in 2007. Tablet computers became popular when the iPad came out in 2010. Now we have more complicated things to think about with the Internet of Things and thinking about things like drones, augmented reality systems, driverless cars, telepresence robots, delivery robots, wearables, devices that work together with your mobile devices like an EKG machine or blood pressure cuff that work together with your smartphone, 3D printing, big data, augmented virtual reality systems, artificial intelligence systems, and robots just starting to take off. 
we have an ever-increasing power of computers that are creating a world of disruptive technologies that work synergistically. One of the main challenges, as I say, is trying to navigate a world of these disruptive technologies at the same time trying to comply with regulations that were written in 2003. What's your opinion? Do you think that the HIPAA security rule is outdated or is it flexible enough to sort of compensate for these new technologies and what's needed to protect patient data when these new technologies are used? When we talk about information security regulations, a lot of the laws that we have relating to information security talk about a duty of reasonable care relating to security, taking reasonable care to protect certain kinds of information. And that is a very general type of standard, but it's infinitely flexible. What is reasonable under the circumstances depends on the type of technology being implemented, and it can be extensible to new types of technologies. You can apply the principle of reasonable care to these many new technologies. The problem with that type of flexible standard is that it doesn't provide specific guidance for specific types of situations that would come up. It doesn't say, for example, should you encrypt data in a particular instance? And it has the nature of being hindsight judgment-oriented type of law where somebody will look in hindsight and say that wasn't reasonable. And what people would like to have is some advanced guidance to know what to do. When HIPAA security came out in 2003, we thought that this was at last something more detailed that would provide some kind of advanced guidance. And it did have quite a bit of specificity to it so that you could go down a list of administrative, physical, and technical controls and figure out how to implement what the Department of Health and Human Services suggested that you do. The problem has now been that we're having to deal with all of these disruptive technologies, and now I think we're back to using the touchstone of reasonable and appropriate controls in the HIPAA security rule to apply to these new technologies. It's now closer to the first model than it is to the second model, especially when it comes to these disruptive technologies. So I don't think that there are gaps because of these emerging technologies because you can apply the general standards within the HIPAA security rule to these new technologies, but we don't have the specific guidance that we thought we had in 2003. So, Stephen, when it comes to disruptive technologies, which ones are you most concerned about when it comes to healthcare and sort of the risk that's presented to PHI with the use of these technologies? I would focus on two of them. One is smart medical devices that may be connected to the networks of various kinds, and the other is wearable computers. And when you think of uh, systems that are connected to the so-called Internet of Things, it is helpful to keep in mind that smart medical devices may have different types of connectivity. There might be a smart device out there, maybe not a medical device, that's connected to the public Internet. So that's definitely part of the Internet of Things. It is part of the public Internet. But we could have smart medical devices that are accessible via a closed network within a hospital setting, for example, or sensors connected to a mobile device that is connected to the Internet, public or in a closed network, 
We could have mobile sensors that connect later to the Internet or network-connected devices. So sensors might collect information, then connect to a device that then is attached to the Internet or, or a network. We could have unconnected sensors from which data are gathered and then later uploaded to the Internet. And we might have online accounts that work with any of those. So when you think about a wearable computer, your Fitbit, there might be a, an online account that's associated with that Fitbit. So when you think of those types of devices of the Internet of Things, what we're seeing is that there are many vulnerabilities being exposed by these devices. In one particular instance, I met a researcher named Billy Rios at a meeting of the Information Security Committee of the American Bar Association Section of Science and Technology Law, and he mentioned how he was able to buy a Philips X-ray equipment device that controls X-ray devices. So it's a, it's a controlling device. It's not the X-ray machine itself. But he was able to compromise this controlling device by exploiting known vulnerabilities. And he said that if, if this machine were being used and he were able to compromise the device in this way, he could have caused patient harm by taking control of that device. Or he also, in sometime later, found vulnerabilities in a Hospira infusion pump and was able to attack this device with known vulnerabilities. And the types of vulnerabilities that I'm talking about are not things that would be something that only a sophisticated research university would know. Rather, what we're talking about is things that would be basic information security controls that seem to be lacking. So he mentioned that there was a lack of access control. There were buffer flow overflow errors that he could cause. It was not authenticating the data source. There wasn't in encryption. There were hard-coded passwords in the device. The private keys were not protected on the device. The software had not been updated, and it was subject to remote hijacks. So when you look at that type of device, you could think of a substantial potential for patient harm. And so those are the, the concerns that I have about Internet of Things devices. Wearable devices also can be used if they are part of a program that HIPAA-covered entity is creating to allow the collection of information for the purpose of delivering healthcare, then we have privacy and security concerns about that vast amount of data being collected by these Fitbit devices and how that data could be used later on. So those are the two areas that I would focus on first. But and all of these systems could potentially someday be of great concern. When you think of a, of a surgical robot, for example, I would be concerned about how that surgical robot is being protected so that some remote hacker could not penetrate a network, gain access to that surgical robot, and disrupt a surgery, for example. So now, Stephen, what about telemedicine? What sorts of new risks are emerging with telemedicine technologies that allow clinicians to treat patients remotely? With telemedicine systems, we have to be concerned about the communication between the two points that are communicating. So you can think of, for example, a consultation that might take place where a, an image is being passed over the public Internet to allow a clinician to be able to look at that image and provide some advice. That's just one example. There are many examples. But using that simple example, you could think about the communications between point A and point B. How are those communications being secured? Certainly, we have the ability through TLS or something like that to be able to encrypt the communications between those two points. But then thinking about this data being stored on the, the clinicians, then how is that data being accessed? Could that stored information be accessed later on? How do we authenticate 
the two endpoints? How do we make sure that there's not physical tampering with the two endpoints? Those are the types of security concerns that I have about that. So, Stephen, what is your advice to covered entities and business associates about how they should approach their security programs when it comes to the use of these technologies? What are the risks and what sort of gaps must they be mindful of when it comes to HIPAA? They should do an information security review of any new technologies that they procure. Security should be part of the due diligence process. In other words, the covered entities and business associates should not be buying technology just because it's the latest gee whiz item without thinking about the privacy and security implications of the technologies that they're procuring. Confidentiality, integrity, and availability will continue to remain relevant to that analysis, and they should consider how they are extending their administrative, physical, and technical safeguards to these new technologies. So I mentioned a surgical robot, for example. We can think of administrative safeguards as including training and education about the security risks that that surgical robot would face. Physical safeguards would include protecting the device from intrusion, somebody tampering with the device, somebody gaining unauthorized access to it when it's not being used, for example. And then technical safeguards. How are the communications between the robot and the network protected? What types of authentication is going on to make sure that whoever is using the device is an authenticated user? Those would be examples of technical safeguards. And then thinking about some general principles, it is still important to do a risk assessment when these devices are being used or when these systems are being used by HIPAA-covered entities and business associates. Those covered entities and business associates should include those new technologies in their risk assessment. They should also think about the division between work and personal assets. We may have clinicians using a personal cell phone or a bring-your-own-device cell phone to connect with those sensors that are being used to collect patient information. Then you have to think about that personal phone being used for work purposes and how we can keep that divide between work and personal. And then thinking about training and awareness. Training and awareness will remain vitally important as we go forward and use these new technologies. The human element is often the weakest point in the security posture of a HIPAA-covered entity or business associate. So thinking about how we can train our workers to minimize the risks associated with the use of these technologies will be very important. In reference to these new technologies, are there any particular security controls that you think are helpful for organizations to be considering when it comes to securing these technologies? Certainly. In addition to those general principles that I was talking about, we can think of different types of things that are very apt for these new technologies. One example would be secure design methodology. In procuring these systems, the purchaser should be thinking about looking at how these devices were designed. What processes did they go through to make sure their coding practices were secure and that their supply chains were safe from counterfeit devices or devices that might even include malware. They should think about transmission security as something we are thinking about in terms of the connection between point A and point B. We use telemedicine as an example, but transmission security would look at how those communications would be protected, and that would be generally applicable to other things. If you can think of, for example, a connection to a cloud-based system that could provide differential diagnosis information using artificial intelligence there would have to be some kind of transmission security to protect the confidentiality of those communications between the clinical setting and the, the cloud service that's providing that. Access control and authentication become important. Are the users of these devices and systems 
the proper ones to be using them. Are they authorized users? How do we know that? They have to implement access control and authentication. They should be testing for vulnerabilities and using penetration testing to make sure that these systems are hardened against attack. They should be keeping updates and patches going to make sure that that software is the latest version being used in any of these devices. There should be a means of checking for integrity of data over time so that any corruption or loss of information would be caught. We talked about physical access controls, but that generally applies to any of these types of systems. We want to make sure that somebody walking in off the street couldn't steal a device or tamper with a device that's being used in the clinical setting. Vendor due diligence, assessment, and oversight are critical. Just because you did the due diligence when you procured the product or system, you still need to maintain oversight over that third party over time. We need to have account security. If there are accounts that are part of the use of a particular device, we should think about securing those accounts as well. I'm thinking about cloud accounts, for example, or online accounts of various kinds that go together with a hardware device. And then finally, think about capacity planning. Availability of information over time is important, too. So if you need a persistent connection, I mentioned that AI system, for example. If you need a persistent Internet connection over time, you have to make sure that you have the capacity so that if there are any spikes of need or or demand, that you would be able to meet the demands for the persistent connection over time. Thanks, Steve. I've been speaking to attorney Stephen Wu. I'm Marianne Kolbasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.